Hello, my name is Leah Hollis, and I am thrilled to be here today for our podcast, which is entitled Discussing the Jewish Perspective at HBCUs. Uh, today, we are speaking with Professor Joseph Drew. And just a little background, he is just a wonderful colleague, scholar, and friend. Uh, he's served 25 years at HBCUs, and two of those years, he was my office mate at Morgan State University, and I believe he's trying to convert me to a sociologist. I've learned so much from him, but I also really wanted to interview him because if you've talked to Joe for about five minutes, you know that he is Jewish and very proud of his background. So I wanted to uh, bring him to you. He is currently a professor at the University of Maryland Global Campus, and I think if I didn't say it, has 25 years direct experience teaching at HBCUs, both the University of District of Columbia and also Morgan State University. Welcome, Dr. Drew. How are you today? Oh, I'm terrific. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. Wonderful. We're going to kick off with some questions. Um, so first I have, can you tell us about your background and your experiences at HBCUs? Thank you very much, Dr. Hollis. I have to say it's such an honor to be on a podcast with you. You're one of the most admirable women I know, and um, you're a great professor, and it's been a, a pleasure in my life to have been, um, to be associated with you, and I appreciate uh, coming on this podcast today. It's, it's very thoughtful and kind and generous of you. So thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Joseph Drew. Um, I began my life in upstate New York. I grew up in Glens Falls, New York. Um, and actually that's the beginning of this story, I suppose, in many ways, you know, Glens Falls, um, uh, was the small town of about 20,000 in the Adirondacks. And in the center of the town, there's a civil war monument with the names of all the soldiers from the town who died, uh, fighting in the civil war. And we're located not far from the grave of John Brown, who has been one of my heroes since childhood. So I grew up uh, in a very, uh, in a town that was, well, it was called Hometown USA by Look Magazine in the late 40s. And um, it was a nice place to grow up, uh, especially talking about race relations and so forth. Uh, you know, Dr. Hollis, I recently went to a high school reunion from my Glens Falls High School. And one of the fellows stood up and told us, he said, you know, you guys, you all know that we were uh, national number two in the little league. That's the baseball league for high school kids. But it's really that we, we were really weren't that hot. And so they said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, we won the state championship for New York State that year. And then we went to Williamsport, which was in Pennsylvania, which was where they have the World Series of Little League. And uh, he said, you know, they put us up, they arranged us so that we would uh, fight, we would oppose the team from Louisiana. And when Louisiana saw our team, they refused to play us because unbeknownst to us, we were an integrated 
team. No one had paid any attention to that in Glenswell. We were an integrated team. So Louisiana uh, took a bye, I think they call it. And so we got moved up in the ranks. And then, then the people in charge of the National Little League uh, put us against South Carolina. And they did the same thing. They refused to play us uh, because we were interracial. And so we came in second in the nation, not through any competition, but just because we were an all-American town and uh, prejudice didn't work very well with us. So that was the, the background, I guess, that I came from, grew up. I went to college in New York City at Columbia College. And while at Columbia, among other things, um, I became head of the Congress of Racial Equality. Congress of Racial Equality was started uh, by James Farmer, who was a great national hero. And, uh, and that was kind of, that was in the early 60s and the civil rights movement was in, in high gear. And I led a demonstration that I was very proud of at the World's Fair. And uh, we were quite successful because all the other people that were supposed to demonstrate didn't show up. So we got all the publicity and the cops, and they put us on an island in the ocean for several days. And that was kind of the beginning of my experience, you might say, um, in working for racial advancement uh, and improvement of the United States. And uh, after I graduated uh, that year from college, uh, that was in 1964, as a sociologist, as you, Dr. Hollis, have said, um, I went to the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and I was very pleased to have gotten into the, uh, the J school, the Pulitzer school. Um, but it was interesting because when I was on that island, uh, my father uh, got in touch with an old friend of his who came out and uh, he said, Joe, he said, I can get you off the wrap here but you're going to have to promise me that you're not going to go next week to Mississippi and lead a demonstration, get arrested all over again. Then I'm wasting my time. And while I didn't appreciate what he said, I sat down and thought about it. And I decided that, well, maybe my contribution to improving race relations in America could best be done through journalism. And so I would try to write and, uh, con and continue to press forward on the civil rights uh, movement, which I had become very, very active in by that point. So after I had the uh, journalism uh, school, got a master's in journalism, I spent a year in the Volunteers in Service to America. That was part of the war on poverty. And so I started a newspaper for people in the housing projects in um, Seattle, Washington. And it was quite successful as a newspaper, only a big fight developed because we had been told maximum feasible participation of the poor. So I created a uh, board to take over the paper when my year in Vista would be up. And the housing authority uh, said, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to report to us. And so we had a big confrontation. It was covered in the press out there. And um, well, on paper, I won, but it was a Pyrrhic victory because then they announced I was being transferred to nearby Hartford, Connecticut.
<laughs> and that was the end of the newspaper in Seattle. And in Hartford, I worked for the human rights, the state's uh, human rights um, office. And from there, uh, I got a job as uh, assistant director for publications at the Education Commission of the States. And I began my professional career then. But even then, I was very active in um, interracial activities and so forth. Um, that we started in Cincinnati and then the national office was moved to Denver. And uh, in Denver, one day I was talking to a lady who was a secretary in the office. And uh, I said, well, you know, I haven't been um, taken it for the war in, in, in uh, Vietnam. And I said sort of casually, but of course, if uh, war would start in Israel, I, I would go to that. Never thinking that that might happen. And uh, I was driving into uh, work on June 5th in Denver, 1967. And I heard on the radio, oops. And I get to the office and there's that lady. And she said to me, well, I said, well, what? She said, are you going? I said, of course. So I uh, then, uh, even though it was not legal, um, I went, I, I called my roommate up uh, from college and I said, Rick, we're not going to go to Alaska camping out like we planned, but if you want to go east and in a hurry, you know, you can join me. So we went to Israel and uh, the day we arrived, the war ended, the Six Days War. And that kind of exposed to me, you might say, another part of my personality. And so in thinking about this podcast today, I decided that all of us who are Americans have um, several dimensions to ourselves and we have to examine which matter the most to me. In my case, was I a, a progressive American whose life was dedicated to the civil rights movement? Or was I a Jew whose life is dedicated to being supportive of the Jewish people in, in our homeland, Israel? And I think my life has uh, worked its way out over these many years as kind of both of those things uh, are being very important to me. And uh, both of those resonate. Uh, I, and I think that's for the case for uh, many people, uh, being Jewish, being pro-African-American. The two things come together. Which song moves you the most? Is it Lift Every Voice and Sing, which I cry when I sing that song. I'm in a choir, by the way, so we'll be singing. Or is it Hatikva, the, uh, the hope, it translates, which is the hope of the Jewish people to be a free people in our own land. So I think both of those things contribute to my background um, and uh, opened up for me. I, I, I became a college uh, official and uh, worked in the U.S. House of Representatives. And uh, then I was in New York uh, as director of grants and research at Brooklyn College. I got a PhD going to school at night at the New School for Social Research. And then I found out that being a grants officer was a great job. I loved it. Uh, but to move up, you had to uh, have faculty experience. So I got an offer to come to the University of the District of Columbia. 
And uh, even though it was a historically black college or university, I always thought of it as a state university. And uh, so when I got to um, UDC, uh, I think I was one of the first, if not the very first, that was hired by the university because it was an amalgamation of three pre-existing colleges. Um, I thought I would only be there a brief time and then move on in administration, but I liked being at UDC so much and I liked being a professor so much that I stayed there uh, for uh, two decades. And uh, that was where I built up my real experience with HBCUs. After uh, UDC, I was a full professor of political science there. I was vice president of the faculty senate. Um, I was very active in in the community, helped start the Safe Streets Project. We're on the television all the time uh, with uh, black uh, developments in in DC. And then I moved and became uh, vice president at Southeastern University, which was also a majority black institution where I was vice president for academic affairs and external affairs there. I'm, I'm curious, Professor Drew, um, what I'm hearing you say is that most of your schooling and your background was in the North, New York, and et cetera. But then you find yourself in HBCUs, uh, both of which are below the Mason-Dixon line. Did you find any changes moving from the North to the South and with your commitment to civil rights and uh, your background as a Jewish scholar? You know, I, um, as a journalist, before I went to journalism school, I worked at my hometown newspaper and I uh, talked them into letting me go down to the march in Washington in 1963, uh, the, now known as uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, but that was a, a very formative moment in my life. And as I, I kind of reviewed the articles that I wrote, um, which I still have them around here, And I noticed that I I referred to the fact, just what you said, it was a Southern town. I always thought thought of it as a national capital. But uh, as we approach, we uh, NAACP from uh, Albany and New York, the group I was with, people started talking, you know, we're in the South now and so on. And uh, it's true. (laughs) True. There's a different culture. There was in those days, a different culture. Uh, Washington has changed tremendously, and uh, Washington is in many ways untypical of its geographic location, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. The first experience I had with sheer raw racism was when I was a little boy, seven or eight, and we decided to take a trip. It was a winter time, so we drove and we were going to take a vacation in this uh, in Myrtle Beach. And in those days, it was before the Interstate Highway, Dr. Hollis. And so when you got to the bottom of the Delmarva Peninsula, you had to take a, the, put the car on a ferry and take it across to uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And we got on that ferry and I saw that they had uh, four bathrooms and I burst into tears and I started punching my father. <laughs> I said, Daddy, you've got to make them stop this. This is so insulting to people. And he said to me, yeah, I agree with you. What can we do about it? And that was my first experience with the South. And with- So this is the Jim Crow bathrooms, white and colored that you're referring to? 
Yes. And later I had many black friends tell me the horrible experiences that they've had, they had in those with those bathrooms, like for example, in Kentucky, right across from Cincinnati, where I work, they said, oh, they used to have to, if their mother went to the bathroom, there was no door on the bathroom for black women. It's so horrid. And they, you know, the South was just terrible and racism was terrible. And I think that my generation devoted a lot of effort to trying to change, get rid of the rawest and the worst parts of this, which was the degradation of American history. So I'm curious how your Jim Crow experiences and your background or also your faith, what would you say is the basis for the strong black Jewish relationships that we, we often refer to? What, why do you think that is? Well, that's a great question. Uh, Dr. Hollis, I think that Jews and blacks, um, the relationship has had ups and downs. Although I, I have rarely in my life, certainly at an H, uh, a BCU ever experienced any raw prejudice from, I think, uh, uh, African-Americans have suffered enough and they don't need to cast upon other groups, mm -hmm. horrors, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's probably two reasons though, why Jews and blacks have had an interesting relationship up through ups and downs. One is they have similar defense needs. They both have to be defended from bigotry. And two is from the Jewish perspective, it's a lot like the black church in many ways in that there is uh, the whole Jewish religion uh, to me boils down to social action, boils down to justice, the fight for uh, social justice in the world. That's what our religion really is. And so for those two reasons, the need to have allies in the fight against bigotry and because we're motivated generally for that uh, reason uh, from the Jewish angle, that's what has driven it. Now, I, ha I should say that for a while, I worked as a reporter for the Jewish newspaper called The Forward. And I covered black Jewish relations uh, and I covered immigration, two, two areas that I was very interested in. And so sometimes I was in, in um, situations which weren't extreme, which weren't very pleasant, for example, um, interviewing, uh, well, local politicians say and stuff who were uh, anti-Semitic, but that, that was like in the line of business. And I never experienced any personal hostility in my entire life um, from black people like I have from white people. So I think uh, the, the, you know, what did it, they, the old saying, we may have come over on different ships, we're in the same boat now. And I think that's what, uh, accounts for uh, hundreds of years of strong black Jewish relationships. In general, there's been ups and there's been downs, but by and large, two groups are looking for freedom and acceptance in this society. Mm -hmm. So how do you imagine or could reflect on how this manifested in your HBCU experiences at both institutions, UDC and Morgan? At, at UDC, um, nobody could have been nicer to me. Nobody could have been nicer to me. I was rapidly promoted to full professor as, as a young fellow. 
Um, I was vice president, elected vice president of the faculty senate for maybe uh, about the whole time, the two dozen years that I was there. Um, it was it was wonderful. When I taught in classes, students would often ask me about the Jewish issue or the Israel issue. What's my opinion about this and that and so forth. But always in a, a, a questioning way, not in a insulting or my experience was just perfect at UDC uh, from from that point of view. It was it was wonderful. Um, Morgan. Morgan wasn't quite as an advanced an institution in some ways, I thought, as UDC. Uh, uh, it was more of a um, it was more retracted from the world, maybe you might say, than UDC was. Uh, but still, I never came across any experiences at Morgan where I felt the least bit um, any any hostility on the basis of being Jewish. Students invited me. Uh, one of my, my students became a, a minister. I went to her investment ceremony and so on and so forth. Uh, I never ran across any, not to my face, any hostility at, at either of those institutions based on on, on the racial component. And as we think about HBCUs, I know I uh, had recently read an article about when Jews were fleeing Nazi Germany, that in many ways, HBCUs recruited Jewish scholars and provided that kind of support. Um, could you speak to that about how HBCUs uh, potentially helped uh, some Jewish academics who were fleeing Germany at that time? It wasn't potential. It was actual, Dr. Allen. It was actual. You've got to remember that the United States, uh, at the after World War One, became a very reactionary uh, society. Uh, and they introduced these horrible National Origin Quota Acts, um, two of them in the early 20s, which basically stopped uh, Jewish immigration, or almost stopped it, uh, all the way up until 19, uh, after World War II. And as Hitler uh, expanded in Europe, and it became obvious that uh, it was impossible to live there for Jews, and more and more and more degradation uh, culminating in the Holocaust, people were desperate to get out. Well, you couldn't get anywhere in the world. Um, in 1938 at the Evian-Leben conference in France, uh, they asked the countries of the world uh, to take what they anticipated was going to be these Jewish refugees from German-controlled territory. And they were in alphabetical order. And Australia started. And they said, we don't have a Jewish problem and we don't want to have a Jewish problem. And they went through the alphabet and nobody was willing to take the Jews. Yesterday, I, I participated or listened in on a conference, which was wonderful, on Holocaust studies and African studies. And most of the, guests, most of the speakers were professors from Africa. And they were talking about the fact that the, in the British colonies, as well as the French colonies, the colonial rulers basically prevented any Jews escaping into those lands like Ghana, for example. So where were they to go? One possibility would be the United States 
but the United States had these horrible restriction laws. The only way to get around them or the major way to get around them was to have sponsorship by American institutions uh, for those who were professors. And that's where the HBCUs came in to provide wonderful help and assistance. And a number of people were able to survive because they were sponsored by um, Tuskegee and other um, universities here in the United States, black universities. And uh, it, it saved hundreds of people. And um, I, I also want to brag that the school where I got my PhD from, the new school, also set up a whole division called the University in Exile and did the same thing. But when you imagine the amount of money that has to be set aside for that and proved to the State Department, which was full of racist anti-Semites at the time and did everything possible to deny people uh, freedom and uh, their lives, really, uh, you have to say, God bless the HBCUs for what they did. But the other side of that is that this also enabled um, students at HBCUs to be exposed, excuse me, to high quality <coughs> professors from Europe, some of whom didn't speak English that well, uh, and to see what, you know, what life was like for another group also persecuted and so on and so forth. I think um, the world needs to acknowledge the wonderful role of the historically black colleges and universities in saving so many worthy individuals from death and destruction. Now, do you find that HBCUs in our contemporary time period are continuing to give support to the Jewish uh, community or, or is it reciprocal or how do you see relations between HBCUs and the Jewish community now? You know, I'm not such an expert on that subject, but um, I think that Jewish people uh, are given an opportunity for jobs, let's say, as faculty members at HBCUs without the um, anti-Semitism entering into it. In my life, I've applied for jobs as professors at various places and told, oh, well, maybe uh, with your background, you wouldn't feel comfortable here and got turned down with people didn't even know me from a hole in the wall. But just because you know, of the, the racial part. But I never had that experience in HBCU. How about that? And what's interesting is so many HBCUs are steeped in these Christian traditions, whether they were founded by the church or part of a missionary. I mean, some of them were founded by philanthropists. So I'm curious, I mean, in some ways, you know, I guess, well, being Jewish, you are a religious minority, but then HBCUs have these Christian traditions. Um, how did those two work together or was never an issue or just? Dr. Hollis, such a wonderful question. The biggest question in the Jewish world, one of the biggest questions since the founding of the state of Israel is what we call, who is a Jew? And this is a fight that goes on and on and on. But you see, if you're Jewish, you're entitled to live in Israel, become a citizen of Israel. It was set up in many ways to be the uh, um, place of refuge for us. Uh, so then the, what happened was shortly after Israel uh, became a country, within two years, a guy applied to become a citizen of Israel. Father Daniel, his name was. He was Jewish, but he had become a Catholic priest. 
and this went to the Supreme Court of Israel, and they said, even though he's a Catholic priest, he's Jewish. So I, I think that we um, are people who were chased from our homeland 2,000 years ago, and we've wandered the face of the earth ever since. One aspect of our life has been religion. But to me, that's not the only or even the sole indicator of us. It's more like we're pushed out of our, our homeland. So when we go to a school where there are a lot of people who are very religious and they're practicing a religion that isn't a Jewish religion, um, I think we probably tend to look at ourselves more in that, in that light of, well, I'm a Jew. I got born that way. I'm going to die that way. That's my ethnicity. But there's a lot beautiful in the Christian religion as it has emerged in the African-American tradition. When I feel depressed and despondent, I turn on YouTube and I listen to mostly um, African-American religious music. And that gives me great comfort and solace, even though we don't have the Jesus part of it, the spirit that motivates the black church and the spirit of Christian people who happen to be African-American is, is a expansive. It's, it's a religion. It's a feeling that can apply to all. And so I have never Oh, once in a while, somebody might say something about, well, you killed Jesus or something like that. Um, but it's very rare. And the one time actually I think that that happened to me recently, it was a white student who said that. So the Christian religion, as it's, um, evolved through the African American experience is a wonderful, it's something that I can totally identify with. And like, for example, um, there's a version of Lift Every Voice and Sing that was put out the day uh, uh, the, of the inauguration of President Obama. And it shows a whole history, African-American history, while the choir is singing. Uh, it goes from the very beginning in Africa, and then it shows uh, Lincoln Park and President Obama walking out on stage with his family the night he was elected. Well. Doesn't that lift everybody's heart? And can't we all sing? So my feeling is that it's, it's the Christian tradition as manifested through the African-American experience is a warm and inclusive one and one to which we Jews uh, don't feel, you know, can feel attracted to, not repelled from. Okay. It's like a sense of belonging is, is there. It's like a sense of belonging. In the, in the song. Two groups have suffered throughout history. The manifestation of their suffering can be shared regardless of the vehicle in which it's, in which it's carried. I don't need to believe that Jesus is my savior uh, to appreciate the beauty that goes to the soul of African-American church music, for example. That's, that's, a, that's a part of me that I have picked up and, and all my life uh, has given me solace. Uh, so the Christian tradition, as exposed in the HBCU tradition, is one which I think all Jews can, be, um, can feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Well, I know we've we've been talking now for about a half an hour and you've been delightful to listen to. My concluding question for you is, do you have any insights about the Jewish experience at HBCUs or advice to students or faculty who are uh, have communities with African-Americans and Jewish folks working and learning and, and professing together as professors? Any concluding remarks? Well, you know what, Dr. House, I would uh, point this out. We, uh, although uh, Jews come from our ancient homeland from which the Romans expelled us, Jews today are not a monolithic ethnicity. Uh, We have probably 10 to 15% of the Jews in America are either African-Americans who practice the Jewish religion uh, or people who have come from um, Mizrahi, we call them, people who came from, let's say, Tunisia, uh, North Africa, we, uh, and we have different strands. When we talk about religion, we have different strands or different types of Jews. Um, I was brought up in the Reformed tradition, which just this week got accepted by the Israeli Supreme Court as acceptable uh, for conversions and so forth in Israel. But other people uh, are, are conservative. Other people are orthodox. So I would say when to people at HBCUs, when you're looking at us, we're a complex group. We're not just monolithic in that sense, but all of us can feel at home and welcome in an HBCU, even if we're not at all African-American. The spirit that motivates African-American people as expressed through HBCUs, all I would say is thank you, deans, thank you, presidents, thank you, those who hire and those who recruit students. Thank you for considering us as uh, just as American as you and letting us come to HBCUs. I think there is a a wealth of opportunity uh, there for uh, both groups. Great. Great. Well, thank you so much. I know we've come to the time. It sure did fly by. Um, But again, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Joseph Drew uh, from the University of Maryland Global Campus. And I really appreciated hearing his insights today about his walk through academia and just a super colleague. So if you ever have a chance to take a class with Dr. Drew, do not pass on the opportunity. So thanks so much. And this really does conclude our podcast for this afternoon. God bless you. God bless you, Dr. Howard. You're terrific. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you.